Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. A very good uh, afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Today, of course, is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we will take time to look at the first new biography of King in 30 years. That itself is amazing. Uh, that a figure, uh, a public figure of his stature, uh, hasn't had a significant biography since um, the three-volume work by Taylor Branch and then the uh, Bearing the Cross by uh, David Garrow. But uh, there's been a lot uncovered since those biographies. The recently released White House telephone transcripts, uh, FBI documents, letters, oral histories. So we're going to have Jonathan Eig with us, an outstanding writer. Uh, this is not his first attempt at biography. He's done biographies of Lou Gehrig and Muhammad Ali. So we'll take a look at the book, and really a look at King's life, which for Christians I think is especially interesting. Uh, the civil rights movement of that era was largely driven by uh, Baptist ministers, black Baptist ministers, and Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And the only other uh, really significant Christian-based social movement has been the pro-life movement. And it's, it's just interesting to see how King's faith worked into the movement itself. There's much to talk about. Also today, uh, we're going to take a look with Dr. Phil Blosser, pick up a conversation we had last year about the gift of tongues and its prevalence through church history. Now, the question that uh, Phil is going after is, how does the modern experience of tongues as a kind of private praise language or a congregational praise language relate to the accounts that we find throughout church history? We're going to look over centuries of church discussion and debate with Phil. And then on January 10th, Stan Matson, president and founder of the C.S. Lewis Foundation, died. Uh, Joseph Pierce, author of C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, is going to be joining us to talk about Stan and his contribution to the life of Lewis. But first, today's headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 15th. It's the Feast of St. Maris. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. Two Nicaraguan bishops and 15 priests have been released from prison and exiled to the Vatican. Bishop Rolando Alvarez has been in prison since August 2022, while Bishop Isadora Mora was arrested in December 2023, along with several other priests. Both have been outspoken critics of the Ortega regime. Pope Francis, along with several other prominent U.S. politicians, have been demanding their release. The U.S. bishops are remembering Martin Luther King. 
In a statement, Archbishop Timothy Bergoglio of the Archdiocese of the Military said that King's message remains especially relevant today, given the issues of migration, anti-Semitism, and racial and religious discrimination touching our communities, and that each of us can and must work for justice and peace, remembering Reverend King's call to action. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is out of the hospital. The Pentagon said he was released from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center today. Austin was admitted to the hospital two weeks ago due to complications from prostate cancer surgery. And you could say hell is freezing over in Michigan after the Detroit Lions beat the LA Rams this past weekend. The newspaper posted a screenshot of the temperature in the town of Hell, Michigan with the words, Confirmed, Hell froze over. It was minus 3 degrees at the end of the game, and it was the first time in 32 years that the Lions had won a playoff game. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. I'm Al Crested. Joining me is Joseph Pierce. Joseph is the author of numerous literary works, including Literary Converts, The Quest for Shakespeare, and Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know. He's senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. St. John Henry Newman, visiting chair of Catholic Studies at Thomas More College in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Also visiting professor of literature at Ave Maria University. And he's editor of the St. Austin Review and series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, visit his website at jpierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, dot C-O, not dot com, dot C-O. Joseph, great to have you with me again. Thanks. It's good to be back with you, Al. Thanks for having me. Uh, I did not know Stan Matson, and so when you wrote about his passing, I thought I needed to give you a call and learn who this man was. Um, he passed away just on January 10th, and I know he was a champion of C.S. Lewis. So tell me a little bit about who he was. Yeah, so from a Catholic context, sort of he's the sort of the C.S. Lewis equivalent of uh, of Dow Olchrist, who many people know as the champion of G.K. Chesterton. Yes, yes. Stan, Stan Matson was very similar. You know, he, he was a very vocal champion and advocate for the works of Lewis, and also to use the works of Lewis to evangelize uh, the modern culture and um, organize conferences just like Dale. So he was basically the C.S. Lewis Dale Alchrist, is the easiest way of putting it. Yeah, very good. Um, Did he have personal acquaintance with Lewis himself? No, he didn't. Um, so, you know, I, I was very privileged to know Walter Hooper, who who, who uh, was a convert to Catholicism and did know C.S. Lewis, and he passed away a few years ago. But Stan Matson has, has been championing Lewis since the 1970s, but never actually met Lewis himself. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about Matson's uh, contributions, uh, about the conferences, was he involved with uh, the? I think you said he was founder of the C.S. Lewis Foundation. What is, what yes, do they do? Found, yeah, he founded the C.S. Lewis Foundation, and and the the two things that they that, that they they wanted to do, well, that the main thing they wanted to do was to 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 promote uh, the works of Lewis uh, and to um, use the works of Lewis to evangelize contemporary culture. They did this by means uh, of conferences, primarily. 
They didn't have a journal of anything, um, but they organised a, a, a triannual uh, Oxbridge conference for every three years, and they were very large and very successful. I, I was uh, fortunate enough to speak at uh, several of them, and yeah, there would be something like five or six hundred people in attendance, mostly Americans who had crossed the Atlantic in order to uh, attend the conference, to be with C.S. Lewis uh, in spirit and, and, and intellect, shall we say, but also, of course, to enjoy Oxford, Cambridge, uh, and and London, and 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 at Stan's unfulfilled mission that I think was his one disappointment, he was hoping that to found C.S. Lewis College, and there are still hopes to 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 do that. And I'm on the on the board oh. um, of C.S. Lewis College, but that was something which did not materialise in spite of his best efforts during his lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you you had a personal acquaintance with him, and you tell the story in your uh, piece in the at the Imaginative Conservative um, of his ministry to you back in August of two thousand and five, when your father was in the hospital. Yes, indeed. So you know, I I, uh, I by, by that time I'd moved over here. So I moved over here in in September two thousand one. Um, so uh, I was uh, went across to speak at the Oxbridge Conference in London, sorry, in Oxford and Cambridge, and we were in the Cambridge part of of, of the uh, of the conference when I heard news that my father had been taken into hospital seriously ill and was not likely to survive. So the first thing I, th- I thank God in His providence that I should only be sixty miles away from my father when Amazing. this happened, yeah. rather than three thousand miles away, which would have been the case otherwise. Um, and if he died very quickly, if I'd been over here, I would not have got over there in time. So first of all, I thank God and his providence. But the other uh, uh, wonderful thing about it, I had to cancel my talk so I could be at my father's bedside um, and drove down just the 60 miles from Cambridge to where my father was in hospital. But the, what was a great comfort to me is the stand was wonderful in basically, should we say, rallying the troops. I mean, everybody at that conference, several hundred people, were praying for my father as he crossed the threshold from this life to the next. And, uh, you know, and he had a very holy death. Uh, the last thing I did with him before he died was pray the rosary with him. So, you know, I'm very grateful to Stan for that, for for, you know, for getting the, the, the group prayers, if you like, of all these wonderful Christians as my father you know, was facing his last battle, so to wow. speak. No, that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful remembrance. And uh, tell us a little bit about your dad's uh, spiritual journey. Yeah, my, my father was, was very anti-Catholic, and, and I was very anti-Catholic largely due to him. I sometimes I learned my anti-Catholicism at my father's knee. Um, and uh, he, he, he converted to the faith, and the last 10 years of his life, when he was housebound uh, with uh, emphysema, um, he, he was, a, he was a, a, a Catholic, which received him to the church. You know, and he was very, he used to call Catholics um, as a term of disparagement, uh, uh, bead rattlers, uh, because Catholics <laughs> right. you know, rattled their beads when they were playing the rosary. So I do think there was a great providential irony and perhaps a, a sign of God's sense of humor that the last thing that, that he and I did together before he died was to pray the rosary. <laughs> I, do, I do catch the humor there. God uh, is uh, arranged that uh, providentially so you could have that experience. That's beautiful. Um, Let me take a few minutes while we're we're together and talk about C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, because Lewis, um, I think in the English-speaking world, probably the most effective uh, evangelist or apologist, uh, 
that we can uh, look to, but he f- he fell short of coming into full communion, uh, the Catholic Church. And uh, a lot of people wonder why, since he seemed to be um, open, uh, open to the idea of purgatory, for instance, uh, um, prayer, uh, communion of saints. What uh, what kept him from becoming uh, coming into full communion? Yeah, so 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 I agree with you. This is a fascinating question that someone who seemed to be so close but never actually crossed the threshold. Uh, into the mystical body of Christ, the Catholic Church, and it was fascinating me enough that I actually embarked upon a whole book project. So I published a book called C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, yes. where I actually study the whole question. So the first thing is, of course, if I've written 65, 70,000 words on the topic, it's very difficult to give a, a, um, a satisfying, satisfactory <laughs> answer uh, in, a, in, a, in a minute or two. Fair but, enough. You know, I, I, always, I always quote uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, though. J. Tolkien, of course, the author of Lord of the Rings, was a great friend of C.S. Lewis. Um, and when Tolkien was asked why Lewis never became a Catholic, he laughed and said it was the austerior motive. Um, and you, you, you need to understand, of course, that the Ulster is the other name for Northern Ireland, that, that C.S. Lewis was born in Belfast, of Protestant parents. It was probably the most sectarian, anti-Catholic city in the world. Wow. And it's basically Lewis never really overcame two prejudices against the Church. Once uh, he never really... Uh, as close as he needed to to the Blessed Virgin, uh, and he was never comfortable with the position with the position of the papacy. So these two knee-jerk reactions that many Protestants have against the Church, he never really overcame those. So, so that, 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 that but you know, as you say, he believed in purgatory. He called. Uh, he believed in the rule presence, the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, he called the Blessed Sacrament the Blessed Sacrament, which is very unusual for. Protestant. So he was a very Catholic Protestant, which is a rather uh, odd scenario, which is where he was when he died, an anomaly, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you mentioned in your book that he was trained never to trust a papist. <laughs> exactly. He was told, basically, he said that uh, upon arriving, uh, he said, upon arriving in Oxford, I was told never to trust a philologist, and uh, from my mother's knee, I was told never to trust a papist, and <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien was quote. <laughs> I love that. I uh, I don't know if you've, you've had a chance to see Holly Ordway's um, volume on the spiritual. It's a spiritual biography of Tolkien. Um, yeah, I, I, I have it. I'm not supposed to read it. I'm a great admirer of her other book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, which I think was much needed, and I've, I've reviewed that. Um, I, I, but the uh, the Tolkien's faith is on my shelf, but yet, unfortunately, to have its pages cracked open. <laughs> well, there's always too much work and not enough time to read. Uh, yeah. Tolkien uh, and Lewis remained friends throughout their life, and Tolkien was a deeply committed Catholic, and how did how did the work the group called the Inklings that uh, had grown up around Lewis and Tolkien how did that how did the Catholic dimension of that work? Well, uh, basically, you know, the, 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 the friendship between Tolkien and Lewis was crucial to both men. Um, as regards Lewis, but probably more important than the friendship the other way around was it was because of Tolkien's understanding of uh, the role of story uh, in history, and salvation history in particular, uh, and, and, and the necessity of storytelling and, 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 uh, to the human spirit, 
and, and what I call Tolkien's philosophy of myth. But it, it was the enunciation of that on September the 19th, 1931, in Lewis's rooms, that led to Lewis's conversion from, um, from non-belief to Christian belief. Um, so if it wasn't for Tolkien, Lewis may never have become a Christian, in which case, of course, he would never have had all of these wonderful works that he wrote. But on the other hand, although Tolkien said that Lewis was never an influence in the way that that word's usually understood, he said he was a great encourager. And if it wasn't for Lewis's encouragement, he may never have finished writing The Lord of the Rings. So I think the real power of that friendship is we can say truly, if it was not for Tolkien, we might not have the Chronicles of Narnia. And if it was not uh, for Lewis, we might not have The Lord of the Rings and the other stories about Middle-earth. That's amazing. Just amazing. And of course, Lord of the Rings has become uh, just a, it's a cultural phenomenon. It's not not just a uh, a set of uh, books, but it's become a cultural phenomenon with its films and its uh, fantasy uh, world. Uh, in your estimation, what is most influential in the West right now, Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, I think that the, 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 the type of influence is different, so that, 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 that's important. We have to be nuanced about it. Yep. The Lord of the Rings has influenced far more people, but much more subtly. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia has influenced lots of people, uh, but much more obviously from the point of view of, of evangelizing. What I say about the Lord of the Rings is that, that, um, that, that an atheist will read the Lord of the Rings, and anybody that reads the Lord of the Rings is going to be moved closer to Christ, but they won't be converted immediately. They'll mm-hmm. just be moved somewhere they're more open than they were before they read it. Whereas, of course, the Chronicles of Narnia opens people's minds to the fullness of orthodoxy. Joseph, thank you so much. Great talking with you again. My, and I'm, my pleasure. God bless you all. Thanks for introducing us to Stan Matson too. Joseph Pierce, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. Follow his outstanding work at jpierce, P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O, not dot com, dot C-O. We'll have it linked at our site. Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I say, I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well. If I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable, as is any one of us who has a platform. And we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different, but every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we make be fearful, but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Why would God permit the devil to tempt his son in the desert? The symbolism behind those temptations as provided by the Catholic Catechism gives great insight into God's rationale. Jesus, driven by the Spirit, goes into the desert to live in solitude for 40 days. At the close of that period of prayer and fasting, the devil arrives to attempt to compromise Jesus' filial devotion to God his Father. Satan tempts Jesus three times, and Jesus rebuffs him three times. This is a recapitulation of Satan's seduction of Adam. Only this time he loses to the new Adam. It is also a recapitulation of Israel in the desert when the Hebrews provoked God during their 40-year sojourn. 
In contrast, Jesus is totally obedient to his Father's will. Jesus' victory over temptation is a prelude to his victory over sin on the cross. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Last week on Ave Maria Radio's Pull of the Week, we celebrated All Saints Day by asking you to choose your favorite saint. The most popular by far was St. Joseph, with more than 30% of the vote. Coming up in second, we had St. Maria Goretti, and also receiving votes St. Peter, St. Patrick, St. John Paul the Great, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and St. Michael the Archangel. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Jonathan Icke, has given us the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. in three decades. It draws on a landslide of recently released uh, White House telephone transcripts, FBI documents, letters, oral histories, and other material. And uh, he is also uh, the best-selling author of a few other outstanding books. For instance, Ali, A Life and Luckiest Man, Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. He served as consulting producer for the Ken Burns PBS series, Muhammad Ali. He's appeared on the Today Show, NPR's Fresh Air, and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. But his greatest claim to fame, according to his parents, is that his name once appeared in a Jeopardy question, which was solved correctly for $200. You can follow him on Twitter, X, at Jonathan Eig, E-I-G, and you can visit him at JonathanEig.com. Jonathan, wonderful to make your acquaintance. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. I'll say I, I love the biography, um, and I, I did not realize that this was the first serious biography of King in three decades. Uh, that That's stunning to me. Why? Yeah. It's shocking to me, too, and it's really uh, four decades if you, uh, if you count the Stephen Oates book as the last 
a big biography, which is, is how I would interpret that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure why. Um, in some ways, it's because King is such a daunting subject, and, um, and, and, and the story is changing so quickly as we learn more through these uh, FBI documents that are constantly being released. Um, but I also think it's because um, we tend to think of King in, in, in you know, in, since the holiday was created, we've turned him into this very safe figure. We've right. turned him into a saint almost yeah, and yeah. Um, and i think there's a there, there's a reluctance to examine him more closely because we're afraid that it might puncture that image and I, I don't think it punctures the image i think it only enhances the image when you when you tell the truth yeah yeah uh i agree Let, let's go back uh, to the beginning uh, about his family his upbringing um he was raised in a, a relatively well-off middle-class family right in atlanta yeah, that's right. Um, compared to most black people of his generation, his peers, um, he was he was somewhat buffered from the the, the horrors of, of racism in the Jim Crow South because his father was a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, and the the, the preacher couldn't be fired uh, for speaking out, and and that gave him a level of protection. It also gave him a steady his family, a steady income, and and um, he was a very ambitious kid. He, he tried to sneak into kindergarten a year early. He went to uh, skip several grades. In, in grammar school and ended up enrolling at Morehouse at the age of 15. So this was a kid who always had uh, high expectations um, thrust upon him and had high expectations for himself as well. Was he a sensitive boy? Very sensitive. All his life, really. You know, we lose sight of this. This is a kid who was tempted suicide twice as an adolescent, mm-hmm. um, jumped out of a second-story window when he found out that his grandmother had been hurt, and then later when he discovered that she had died. Um, and he was always easily bruised emotionally. Um, at the same time, really charming, really charismatic. Um, people love to be around him. But this is something we'll see throughout his life. He's, he's very sensitive. He's, he doesn't really like criticism. He wants to please people. He has a hard time saying no to people. Um, it's very interesting to think that, you know, our nation's, one of our nation's greatest protest leaders really hated conflict uh, <laughs> in his personal life. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, that excel that itself is worth examining. Um, so obviously, he endured conflict, even though it violated his you know temperament. Um, obviously, because of what commitment to principle. Yeah, commitment to principle, which is rooted in his faith. You know, yeah. I think that um, everything about him, and he learns to read the quote from the Bible before he can read. His, huh. and, as a, and his father, his grandfather, and, and his maternal great-grandfather were all preachers. And um, I think that um, his faith really helps him overcome his insecurities and also gives him a, you know, a, a moral guidepost that this is what he's expected to live up to. And, and he can't abide racism because it conflicts with what's in the Bible. Yeah. You know, he can't abide Jim Crow laws uh, because it conflicts with what's in the Bible and what's, what's in the Constitution. So, you know, he's constantly aspiring, and I think the black social gospel says that it's not just enough for him to aspire, but he has to try to shape the world and, yeah. and bring the nation into into line with, with what the, 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 those, those documents and the Bible promise. That's right. Yeah, sin for him wasn't just a matter of personal behavior. It was also related to social institutions. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, he felt like, um, especially later in life, you know, as a preacher, I think his activism was an outgrowth of his of his role as a preacher. I think he saw the work that he was doing as being designed to save the soul of the world or the nation. 
um, that he was a pastor first and, and foremost all the time. You know, I, one of the things that strikes me uh, looking back a- at him is, in some in some ways, at least at the beginning of the the movement, you know, time of the Montgomery bus boycott and forward. In some ways, he's a he's a somewhat conservative activist. I mean, racism was ungodly. Uh, racism was un-American. And, you know, that's the kind of thing you would hear a, a conservative evangelical saying today. Um, he he had this idea, uh, understanding of structural sin, but in some ways he wanted to call people not only to uh, faith in God, but he wanted to uh, make democracy work. He wanted the, the national story to work. Hey, absolutely, and that's what makes it so interesting. He's he's leading this protest, this uprising, but they're not uprising, they're not rising up to demand the destruction of the United States of America. They're mm-hmm. rising up because they want to join the United States of America. Yeah. They want to be considered equal partners in this democracy, and that's different, and that's what makes it so hard to ignore him, I think, when he begins in Montgomery speaking out. Um, he's saying that the protesters there are only demanding the American dream. They're only demanding that we live up to the words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. So in a way, it's very hard to argue with, because if you if you disagree with him on that, it seems like you're, you're saying you don't believe in these documents. And that's part of his, his great moral strength, and mm-hmm. that's part of what makes him so difficult to ignore. Does he move leftward as he, uh, as he continues on? Yes and no. In a way, he's radical to begin with. You know, he's a radical Christian, because yeah. he's actually trying to get us to live up to the example of Jesus Christ, which means, you know, loving your, truly loving your enemy and, and, and helping the poor, um, treating everyone as if they're equal in the eyes of God. That's pretty radical. Um, but at the beginning, it does seem like he's, he's more conservative, and, and, we, and we see him speaking out more. We see him feeling empowered to address these other issues beyond just segregation as he gains fame and as he gains influence. And that's when he says it's, it's not enough anymore just to talk about Jim Crow laws in the South. He has to address poverty. He has to address um, income inequality and, and materialism and, and militarism, because that's what's in the Bible. And, mm-hmm. and that's where he really begins to be perceived as more of a radical. But I think it was it was baked in there all along. Yeah. So it, right to the end, his faith uh, was was a, was a motivator for him. No question about that. And in fact, you know, we start to see his advisors, people who at one time thought of themselves as more radical than King, his advisors are saying, you know, why don't you just stick to the South? You know, going to you know, going you shouldn't go to Chicago. You don't know what you're doing there. Um, and all of our funding is coming from the North. So if you start attacking and complaining about Northern segregation and Northern discrimination, you know, you're going you're gonna to damage our fundraising. And King has to say to these advisors, you know, it's not about what's practical. It's not about what's politically wise. It's about what's moral. Um, so <laughs> it, 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 he's always going, falling back on that. That's just who he is. And, and they don't understand it. They don't speak the language. Yeah. After the Montgomery bus boycott, demands begin to get put on his life. I mean, he he has to write a book. He's got this magazine column that he's writing now. He's speaking all over. Uh, 
what happens to, I mean, how does he do that? How is, how is his life organized to take advantage of all those opportunities? <laughs> it's not really very well organized. It's kind of a mess. Okay. And, and on top of all those things you mentioned, he's being asked to duplicate the success of the Montgomery Bus. That's right, that's right, yeah. Um, and, and to spread his, his word nationally and to, to make this a national movement. He founds the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for that reason. And, um, and he doesn't have an organization. He doesn't have a fundraising team. Um, he doesn't have, you know, membership. He's, he's making this all up as he goes along. And it, and it doesn't go very well, to be honest. You know, his, his first couple of temp- attempts to duplicate the Montgomery protests really fail miserably. Um, and that's one of the things I love about King is that he's, he's, he's called to this. He's thrust into this position of leadership, never really having sought it. And he just, you know, he's, he says, okay, I'm, I'll figure it out as I go. <laughs> yeah. Um, give us a sense of how dangerous it was um, to be involved in the movement at that time. Well, just to begin with, in Montgomery, where he starts out, there have been 365 lynchings since Reconstruction, and the Klan was very active, and its membership doubled and tripled as King became more prominent and as the bus boycott began. So um, he knew his life was at risk. His home was bombed. Um, his shotguns were fired through the windows. Um, a, a woman that he described as demented stabbed him in the chest. He started getting constant death threats. So this was not, um, you know, hypothetical. He was dealing with it, and, and there was a moment early on in the bus boycotts where his father and, and Coretta's father showed up on the porch of the night of one of these bombings and said, that's it, you know, it's over. You're coming, you're coming with us back home. Um, someone else can take over from here. And both Martin and Coretta stood up to them and said, no, you know, we have a responsibility here. But King knew every day of his life that, that, his, that he was in danger, and it only got worse when the FBI put a target on his back. Yeah, that's, we'll talk about that in the next segment. That's a vital part of this story. Uh, tell us about Coretta Scott King. How did they meet? Uh, how'd they court? How'd that work? Coretta is one of the great unsung heroes, and, and we think we know her because she lived such a long time and maintained his legacy. But what we forget and what we, we don't appreciate is that she was much more of an activist than he was when they met. <laughs> and that's why King fell in love with her. You know, King was dating a lot of women in Boston. Uh, he was at Boston University, and she was at the New England Conservatory of Music, hoping to prepare for a career as a concert singer. And, um, and then that came Jonathan, came I, I just hear the music coming up. Hold it there, and we'll pick up on uh, Coretta Scott King on the other side of the break, if you don't mind. Thank you. My guest, Jonathan Ike, is the author of the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in four decades. It's called King, A Life. And the reviews, by the way, are outstanding. I'm Al Cresta. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, 
Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. We start with a day in Fatima, following all the steps of the Little Shepherds. Santiago de Compostela. The ending point for the El Camino is the home of the largest incenser. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable. You'll have to come and see it to believe it. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Let us strive to know the Lord. Quick question to you and me right now. Is that what you and I are doing every single day? When you and I wake up every day, do we strive to know Jesus or not? In the Old Testament, in the same book of Hosea, a little bit later on, it's in chapter 14, the Lord says through the prophet, my people perish. Or in another translation, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not a lack of data, We got tons of data, not a lack of information. We got a lot of information, not just about things that are happening in the world. We got a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about God, but not a lot of intimacy with God, not a lot of relationship with God, not a lot of friendship. That's the cry of God's heart. God wants to give himself to us in the incredible gift of friendship, and we're not taking advantage of it. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. God isn't content to love us from a distance. That's why he emptied himself, was born a man, walked among us, suffered, died, and rose again. That's why, having ascended to the Father, he gives us the sacraments, all so that we can experience his extravagant love through our senses. Being generously and appropriately affectionate with our kids is an important way to teach them about Christ's own embodied extravagant love. There's nothing stingy or reserved about the way God loves his children, you and me, and we're called to love our children as demonstratively as he loves us. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me is Jonathan Eig. He is the author of the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. in four decades. It's called King, A Life. Uh, I heartily recommend it to you. It was one of my best reads of last year. And we were talking about Coretta Scott King before the break and how they uh, Martin Luther King Jr. met Coretta Scott when they were in Boston. Uh, she was studying at the New England Conservatory, hoping to become a concert singer. And uh, 
Tell us how how did Cupid uh, affect the relationship? It was a it was a love born of activism. You know, she was beautiful and intelligent, but what really attracted King was that she had been um, involved in protests already, and and King hadn't been involved in any of that. Time. <laughs> so um, Coretta had been to Antioch College, and she was involved in lots of student protests, and she'd been to the Progressive Party National Convention, and she had ideas for things that she wanted him to read. I think that's what really excited him, and and. Um, if you look at their early letters, they're you know they're they're full of this intellectual challenges and and full of debates about communism versus capitalism. And Coretta held her own, and really, all her life she would push him to be more aggressive, to think bigger. Um, the, the irony, of course, is that he was also sexist and um, yes. mistreated her, um, cheated on her, and, and denied her a chance to become more involved in the movement, which she desperately wanted. Yeah. So, um, you know, he was not perfect. This is one of his real blind spots. Right. The, the, I mean, this was, the leaders of the movement were definitely male, and yet there was a lot of talent, female talent around. Explain to us why this happened. Why, did that these, why weren't these women given opportunity when, when there was great need for them? Yeah, all this was true in in many areas of life in the 1950s and 60s, but in particular in the Civil Rights Movement, which was led primarily by um, black Baptist preachers. And they came from an environment that was especially um, sexist historically. You know, in the black church, um, women were generally relegated to the roles of, of playing the piano or the organ and perhaps leading some some social committees. And that's the environment in which King and the other leaders of the of the movement generally grew up. Um, so the women paid a price for that, and, and women were constantly reminding the men that they were missing out on these on this great source of talent. Uh, but the men, in, for the most part, were unable to overcome their their prejudices, which is it's sad for a movement that was built uh, centered around equality. Yeah, um, but that's just the way it was. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about um, his extramarital affairs. How 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 big a mark is this on his life? I mean, was this a one-time thing, multiple affairs? What happened? It was multiple, and it was fairly constant, really, um, almost throughout his entire marriage. Um, and it was a um, you know, it's a sign of his of his of his flaws, to be sure, uh, that he um, was not remotely perfect when it came to this. But I think what's important about the affairs in the long run um, is how our government weaponized those affairs. You know, the FBI began surveilling him because they thought he might have ties to former communists. And once they learned that he was not remotely involved in communist activity, they found out that he was having these affairs, and they used that to try to um, undermine his work and to try to destroy him. Actually, you know, at one point, they actually um, made a tape of his activities in hotel rooms and sent it to his home with a letter basically telling King that if he didn't commit suicide, he was going to be exposed. So um, the, the affairs are sad in many ways. They're certainly sad because they reflect his, you know, his moral failure, but the, the saddest part is, is the uh, conduct of the government, I think. Yeah, it must, have, it must have been difficult for him to live with that contradiction. You know, as an active Christian preacher, he's got this... Um, ongoing, uh, you know, sin. Uh, we don't have much from him, though, on his interior life, do we? 
No, you know, his writings are all really political. Um, and we also, you know, we can look at his sermons and we can, you know, read between the lines and see how he's struggling. He talks yeah. about how we all uh, live like Jekyll and Hyde with, with a dark side that we, that we try to ignore or suppress and, and that we, we need to deal with it. And, and we can also hear, um, well, we can read the transcripts of some of his conversations with the FBI and we can hear how sad and how lonely he is and, and at times how depressed he sounds. So we know he's struggling with it, but he never publicly acknowledged um, this side of his life, yeah. understandably, I guess. Um, why, why was J. Edgar Hoover so bent upon destroying him? It's a great question. I mean, I think for Hoover, it's a fear of change. It's a fear of the other. He's um, not just obsessed with, with King. He's obsessed with um, anybody who's different, who poses a threat to the status quo. And in, in the case of King, I think it's, it's uh, compounded by racism. I think uh, most people would agree that Hoover was racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, he knows that King is not interested in communism, and he maintains this obsession. I believe it's because he thinks that if King is successful in uniting black people and white people in pushing America toward a new kind of a, of a democracy, a democracy built on equality, um, well, that means someone's going to have to give up power. And that someone would be the people in charge right now. Yeah. And, and and Hoover sees his job as protecting uh, those with the power, making sure they keep that power. Let's go. Let's go to the assassination. I had the opportunity uh, years ago, after the release of his book, to actually interview James Earl Ray uh, from mm-hmm. prison, and I my it was an experience that I remember clearly because. It was evident to me that he was a liar. I'd read his book, and it doesn't carry the kind of details a real memoir does. I mean, it's like if you compare it, think of a a, a real memoir as a, quote, photograph. This was like a stick figure uh, picture, the way he portrayed Raoul. Who the heck was James Earl Ray? (laughs) I think he was a... A racist idiot who thought it would be a good idea to assassinate King because it would make him look like a hero. Um, and I know a lot of people, including the King family, including friends of King, think it was a conspiracy that he was a straw man for the government. I don't know. Um, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even want to go there. But I do think that you know the government created the conditions that would make some loser like James Orr think it was a good idea to kill this man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just it's it's amazing to me that the circumstances lined up for him to do it. Uh, but uh, he, upon upon his death, um, of course, riots broke out uh, around the, the nation. Robert Kennedy uh, made the announcement and talked about tried to quell down the the reaction. Uh, what was King's relationship to the Kennedys? It was complicated, for sure. Um, you know, a lot of people feel like King and the black community got JFK elected. And, and upon his election, King was very disappointed with JFK's um, reluctance to bring on civil rights legislation. Felt like Kennedy was being too politically cautious and not doing what he knew, what both of them knew was the right thing to do. And it wasn't until Birmingham that King finally put enough pressure on, on Kennedy that he agreed to finally introduce this legislation. 
Um, but at the same time, as King later discovered, it was Robert F. Kennedy who authorized the wiretaps on King and reauthorized them and reauthorized them. And, 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 and King, um, I think, felt like he could never fully trust the Kennedys. Um, and, and I think part of it is just this disconnect because King doesn't really understand why politicians behave the way they do, why they're, um, why they're being political and not yeah. doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go to LBJ then, this uh, Southerner who had many segregationist friends. Uh, how did they relate to, how did King relate to LBJ? Another great complicated relationship because LBJ seems, and is, I think, I think it's fair to say, genuinely passionate about fighting poverty, about fighting racism, about deconstructing um, Jim Crow and and. King is one of his great and most important partners, and they seem to get along beautifully, at least in the beginning. Um, but then, you know, LBJ is poisoned in some ways by J. Edgar Hoover. LBJ seems to enjoy getting these updates on King's sex life. And then when King begins speaking out on the Vietnam War, Hoover particularly plays that card to try to um, really poison the relationship between King and, and LBJ. And we really see the relationship deteriorating uh, over the years. And um, of course, they, they do work together to bring about some of the most important legislation this country has ever seen. Yeah. And, um, and that is, you know, both of their, to both of their credit. Um, but it's, it's just unfathomable to think about, you know, what else they might have accomplished if their relationship hadn't gone south. Yeah. You know, the, the I Have a Dream speech has kind of become part of the American canon now. Uh, and it is it's a beautifully constructed speech. Um, was he a great writer, or did he draw upon other people uh, to help him with his speeches? Yeah, he was a great communicator. He was not a great writer. Okay. Um, his power was the oratory, and often if, when you read the speeches, they don't sound as good as they did coming out of his mouth. <laughs> um, and, and that's because he's a preacher. Um, he's, he, he's brilliant behind the podium. He's at his best when he's when he puts the speech down and goes off on 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 a sermon, which is exactly what happened at the March on Washington. The first half of the speech was was written and he read it carefully and when he when he pushed that paper aside and began to just preach, uh, that's when he really had the crowd eating out of his hands. So um was he a great writer? Um not in the technical sense, but he was certainly, you know, one of our greatest communicators. Uh, you know, he he gets the Nobel Prize. Uh, how how old was he when he received that? Oh, what is he like thirty three yeah. at that point, something yeah. like that? Young, um, really young. He's twenty six when when he starts leaving. When the Montgomery bus boycott begins, and he's only thirty nine when he dies. So we're talking about a very young man throughout all of this. When he's meeting with JFK in the White House, we think of JFK as being this young star. Um, King was 13 years younger than JFK. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, how did he, again, we don't have much, you know, we don't have diaries or journals from him, but I'm just wondering how he understood his extraordinary rise to prominence and power. Uh, how did he account for it? Do, do we have him on record saying anything? Yeah, we do. He says it's a calling. He says that, you know, God told him to do this, and that he, once he accepted that responsibility, there was no turning back. And and I think that's the best way to understand it. He was not looking to become the leader of any movement. Right. He was looking to lead his church and maybe raise a family and 
perhaps become a professor someday. And when he found himself in this moment where people turned to him for help, uh, and God spoke to him and said, you know, do you know, go forth and and do this. He he believed so strongly that it was his responsibility, and I think that's what really guided him. Yeah, he never looked back. Never looked back. I mean, look at those last look at his last sermon, his last speech in Memphis the day before he's assassinated. What does he say? Um, I, you know, I, I a longevity is, is, would be nice. There are benefits to having a long life, but that doesn't matter to me now. Yeah, because. I am here to serve God, and, and I have seen the promised land. Yeah. I may not get there with you, but I know that together, we as a people will reach the promised land. It's, he has given up all sense of self. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's an extraordinary uh, moment. How I'd like to know, how did he relate to the others in the movement? His friend, Ralph uh, Abernathy, um, Andrew Young, uh, John Lewis, how... Jesse Jackson, how did they get along as, as, as guys? You know, I got to interview almost all those people that you just mentioned, except for Abernathy, and I did interview his wife. And they just adored the man. And to them, he was Martin. He was a friend. He was the guy who ate with his fingers because <laughs> the fork slowed him down too much. Um, you know, he smoked cigarettes but hid it from the public. He would take off his socks and shoes and sing along with music on the radio and when they were sitting around the house. And, and he was just funny. He had a wicked sense of humor. And, and these guys just adored him, and, and, and they felt his pain because he was, he was carrying the burden for yeah. so many of them. And, and none of them had to deal with anywhere near the pressure that he had to deal with. It was like he was carrying it for all of them. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you especially for the work uh, on this book. I loved it. And uh, hope to talk with you again. Anytime. Thanks so much. Jonathan Eig is the author of King, A Life, the first comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. in 40 years. It's uh, outstanding, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't shy away from the tough moments. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN.
Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Next hour, we take a look at uh, the church's uh, historic understanding of speaking in tongues. Dr. Phil Blosser will be my guest, and he's uh, been doing extraordinary research in this area. And uh, so stay with me. we got more to talk about. I'm Al Cresta. From the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for joining me. Uh, last year, we spoke with Dr. Philip Blosser about the gift of tongues and its prevalence through church history. And uh, how does the the modern experience of tongues uh, relate to the church's understanding throughout its history. Now uh, we're going to we're going to of course do some recap and what we talked about last year, but uh, Phil is the author of a three-volume series called "Speaking in Tongues: A Critical Historical Examination." Last year we focused on the modern uh, reexamination of tongues. Uh, now we're going to look at some of the greats in church history and how they regarded uh, tongues. Uh, Phil is a professor of philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, and uh, he'll be joining us in just a few minutes here. But first, we want to get to the headlines. Thank you, Al, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 15th. It's the Feast of St. Maris. And today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. The U.S. bishops are remembering Martin Luther King. In a statement, Archbishop Timothy Bergoglio of the Archdiocese of the Military said that King's message remains especially relevant today. Given the issues of migration, anti-Semitism, and racial and religious discrimination touching our communities, and that each of us can and must work for justice and peace, remembering Reverend King's call to action. Pope Francis says those who follow Jesus are disciples of Jesus. In his reflection leading up to Sunday's Angelus, the Pope talked about Jesus' encounter with his first disciples. He said there are three steps in accepting Jesus, to seek Jesus, to stay with Jesus, and to proclaim Jesus. 
the Pope concluded by asking followers to recall their first encounter with Jesus. The death toll is rising in Gaza, where more than 24,000 people have been killed since the start of the Israel-Hamas war on October 7th. Palestinian health officials made the announcement today as the conflict continues, sparked by the Hamas attack on Israel that killed more than 1,200. More than 85% of Palestinians in Gaza have been displaced due to ongoing fighting. And a classic Easter candy will debut some new flavors this year. Four new flavors of Peeps will be hitting shelves soon. The flavors include Rice Krispie Treats, Icy Blue Raspberry, Sour Strawberry, and S'mores Graham Cracker Dipped in Milk Chocolate. The Rice Krispie Treats flavor will be a Walmart exclusive. Icy Blue Raspberry will only be sold at Target, and Sour Strawberry will only be on Kroger store shelves. The new offerings will join other classic Peeps flavors like Sour Watermelon, Sparkly Wild Berry, and cotton candy. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Last year we spoke with Dr. Phil Blosser about the gift of tongues and um, actually what is it? A question that has been of great significance Uh, especially through the 20th century, as we've seen the rise of Pentecostalism and various charismatic movements. Um, And this has always always been, uh, in my experience anyways, a a debate among serious Christians. Uh, Is is tongues a a personal praise language? Uh, Is tongues something that uh, should be exercised in the assembly uh, but always with an interpretation. Uh, are tongues uh, unlearned foreign languages, which uh, can be employed in a missionary situation, foreign mission situation? And um, we're going to go over that again, and then take a look at some outstanding figures in church history and how they regarded the phenomenon of speaking tongues and how they regarded the biblical material. Uh, Dr. Phil Blosser is the author of a three-volume series called Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. He is a professor of philosophy at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. His other books include Shaler's Critique of Kant's Ethics, and he served for many years as acting secretary and webmaster for the Max Shaler Society of North America. He's chaired various panel discussions at the American Philosophical Association and the American Catholic Philosophical Association. Phil, thanks for joining me again. Uh, thank you, Al, for having me. It's great to be here, and um, really appreciate the time. Let's uh, do some a quick summary here. Um, the issue of speaking in tongues uh, becomes uh, a controversial issue beginning the early part of the 20th century, as I understand yes, it. Yes, right. Tell us why. Correct, yeah. Well, um, one problem with the, the word for tongues is that it's become rather equivocal in the way it's used. Uh, tongues today, since the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century, has taken on a kind of mystical or uh, supernatural uh, sort of hue. And, uh, and thus the, the word tongues, as well as a number of other words, has, uh, have uh, taken on some uh, semantic range of meanings that is is maybe a bit problematic and has to be nailed down a bit. Uh, the word tongues in Greek, glossa, 
or glossais, glossais, uh, has only two meanings in church history. Um, and one meaning is the physical tongue, the organ that we speak with, and the other is simply language, human language. And so um, it helps to, to nail down some of these, these words and, and define what we mean by them when we speak. Uh, several other related words are uh, charism. Charisms can be supernatural. That's the way the, the magisterium refers to the gift of tongues, for example, as an extraordinary gift. And there are certain conditions for that. But tongues uh, can also be a gift that's used in a perfectly, perfectly uh, natural way. So charisms can be natural gifts like the gift of teaching or the gift of hospitality and so forth. Um, another word is uh, uh, the word ec- ecstatic. Ecstatic can mean something, uh, for example, in, in, in the case of the Montanists or the uh, oracles of Delphi, uh, ecstasy means one is... Uh, basically unconscious of what is one, mm-hmm. one is doing and saying, whereas for Catholic mystics, uh, a state of ecstasy is one of intense intellectual focus. Uh, so, so these things have to be defined very carefully before we plunge into discussing them. Yeah. Now, historically, how has the Church understood the, quote, gift of tongues that we encounter in St. Paul's writings and we also have the phenomenon of Pentecost. Yes, right. I think the the uh, mainstream tradition of church history and ecclesial writings understands uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, the gift of tongues uh, at Pentecost as being a miraculous gift of speaking uh, in foreign languages that were previously unknown or unlearned okay. by the apostles. Um, in Corinth, uh, th- there's been a lot of debate over that, especially since 1900, but um, some of the early church fathers that we're going to look at in more detail in the third volume on the church of Corinth, um, Epiphanius, um, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, Ambrosiaster, um, and, and some others, they, they refer to what's happening in Corinth as simply a problem of natural translation of a sacred language that the people in the congregation were un, uh, w- w- could not understand, right? Because uh, Corinth was a big crossroads of many different peoples, different languages being spoken. It was a, a city that was raised and, and uh, rebuilt by Rome. So there was Latin there. There was Aramaic with the Jews there. There was uh, Greek, of course. There are many, many Egyptian, Dalmatic Egyptian languages and so forth. Uh, so uh, what was going on there, probably, or at least according to some of the early church fathers, was a natural problem of translation. Okay. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, we sometimes say that the what, what the phenomenon there was not necessarily a, uh, a gift of speaking, but a gift of hearing. Mm-hmm. What, what do we mean by that? Yeah. There's a debate about whether the gift of tongues in the book of Acts was a, was a gift of hearing or speaking. Now, that debate was provoked only in the 4th century uh, by um, uh, a Pentecost oration written by Gregory of Nazianzus. And his own view was that uh, uh, the gift of tongues was a gift of uh, miraculous speech. However, his translator into Latin, uh, Tyrrhenius Rufinus, uh, mistranslated uh, some of the uh, Greek of Gregory of Nazianzus, and as a result of this translation error, 
there developed a debate over whether the gift was, in fact, a gift of speaking or a gift of hearing. And this uh, debate lasted about upwards of a millennium, 800-some years at least, maybe more. Okay. Yeah. And was it settled? Um, there was no magisterial statement on it, but when you read some of the later writers like St. Thomas Aquinas, um, Francisco Suarez, mm-hmm. um, the... the they allowed for both possibilities, but they said it makes most sense to understand it as a gift of speaking. And the reason why is that if you are given the gift of speaking with understanding, then if somebody is asking you questions, you can answer them. Yeah. You can hear confessions. Yeah. You can you can interact. Whereas if you just understand, if it's a gift of hearing, then that's not possible. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is fascinating. You write at one point that the only protracted debate in church history about the nature of speaking tongues was over whether it was a gift of speaking or hearing. So this went on, as you say, for nearly a millennium. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, let's let's go and talk about the your second volume here, Tongues Through Church History, and uh, your treatment of uh, these you mentioned already uh, Thomas Aquinas right. and Suarez. Uh, before that, though, you deal with uh, something I did ha- I'd never heard of before, and that is the Francis Xavier controversy and Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. Oh yeah, that compl- yeah. never heard about it before. So, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, and I didn't know about it either until maybe five years ago or so. But uh, one of the one of the major treatises on um, speaking in tongues and other miracles was written by Pope uh, Pope uh, Benedict the Fourteenth, who is probably the most uh, erudite and scholarly um, person to uh, have the office of the Holy See in, in Church history. He he's written multiple volumes. I mean, whole big collections of his works and writings, and uh, very scholarly oh. and. Uh, uh, the particular work that uh, deals with this issue with St. Francis of uh, uh, Z- St. Francis Xavier is is a volume that is concerned with the criteria for evaluating um, the claims to miracles, uh, including tongues, in cases of beatification and canonization. So he's laying out the criteria for evaluating as authentic. Uh, what what kind of standards need to be met, and so forth. And he goes through some, some very interesting history. He goes back through um, the history of, of uh, tongue speaking, uh, that is, speaking in foreign languages uh, in Wales and Scotland and, and Ireland, um, you know, speakers of, of, of foreign languages miraculously uh, through various times and places in church history. And, uh, and there's some very interesting things he discusses. Yeah. What... What was Francis Xavier um, dealing with with tongues? Was it he, he's a quote foreign missionary? Yes. So is he is he looking to tongues as a way of speaking a foreign language that had not been learned? Uh, yeah. Well, he I don't think he was actually seeking the gift of tongues. Uh, he was a missionary in India first, and then. Uh, in in uh, areas that we would call Malaysia today, and then finally in Japan, and hoping to go to China, but never made it. But um, um, he he struggled with the Japanese language. He said this is a very difficult language to learn, and in some of his letters, he related this difficulty. And as a result of this, uh, some of the um, the Protestant uh, 
this is during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th, 16th century. 16th century, okay. And, and so some of the Protestant um, enemies of Rome yeah. and, and, and some of the rationalists of the period, uh, which is on the rise, uh, were very skeptical about uh, the claims of the Catholic Church that, uh, that uh, Francis Xavier spoke in miraculous, miraculously in foreign languages. Um, but in the give and take between the skeptics and the Catholic uh, respondents, who included uh, all sorts of individuals, including uh, Father John Harden, who some of you probably know in mm-hmm. this area, uh, who wrote a, um, uh, an article in a journal. Um, the article is called uh, "The Miracles, the Miraculous Tongues of Saint Francis of uh, Xavier," mm. and uh, and in that give and take. They point out um, actually that there are a couple of things that that uh, Pope Benedict pointed out. Benedict the Fourteenth, not Sixteenth. Uh, one, maybe the most important, was that there's no inconsistency between struggling with the foreign language on one occasion, and then having the gift of speaking in tongues miraculously on another occasion, because the gift of tongues is a gift which is utterly gratuitous. It 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 is given to you by God's grace sheerly gratuitously and and one cannot earn it one cannot expect it it's something you you get or you don't and there were occasions where he clearly was given the gift of speaking in japanese in yamaguchi in yamaguchi in japan which is uh, near the southern island it's it's the coast of the the main island and uh, he was speaking to a large crowd and uh, from a tree where he could have a, a high sort of prominent position from which to speak, and people understood him clearly, oh. right, in Japanese. And he, he had not made a serious study of Japanese language. He, he tried to study it, but he, he struggled with it. He could not naturally yeah. speak it yeah. with any... He, he, he'd had, um, he had a, a Japanese interpreter for a while, but the interpreter was not especially good. He was from a very poor class, and, and uh, so when he was able to communicate yeah. in articulate Japanese, this just was... A tremendous kind of shock to the people, right? And he did yeah. he understand this as a uh, a gift of the Holy Spirit? Definitely, yeah. most definitely. Okay. But the other thing was that uh, the skeptics, and there's some Catholic skeptics as well. Um, a number of Jesuits were skeptical about his gift of uh, speaking in tongues. What what uh, they suggested was that. Because he was silent about the matter, he never said, I received the gift of tongues. Mm -hmm. They said, well, maybe he didn't, all right? But then others who knew his character better said, well, it's his modesty, it's his humility. He wasn't going to brag about this. Okay. Phil, hold it there. We've got to take a break. Talking with Dr. Philip Blosser, uh, author of Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. We're taking a look at tongues through church history. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. 
you will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you zealous for Jesus? Are you fervent for Jesus? Are we fervent for the gospel? Are we passionate about helping this world come to know him? Is that true? It's not true for most people in the church. Is Jesus my best friend? Is he your best friend? I'm looking around the church. There's a set of guys in here who have great man caves. As I was praying this morning, I felt like the Lord said, Hey, when are you going to come to my man cave? (laughs) Like, you guys think a flat screen TV is really cool. You should see what I got to offer. Because I and I alone, he says, can really give you what it is you're longing for. Whoever it is we're rooting for right now, they're going to lose eventually. Whatever it is that's occupying our time, one day we're going to realize it really wasn't that important. Why aren't we hanging out with the one who alone can show us what life is really all about? When's the last time you hung out in the Lord's man cave? was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils, it is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Philip Losser. He is the co-author of Speaking in Tongues, a critical historical examination. The second of the three volumes is now in print, and uh, we're discussing 
the historical analysis here. Um, why why did you choose Suarez as a one figure to to treat here? Okay, yeah. well, one thing to keep in mind if anyone uh, reads this book is to uh, uh, to realize that it's going backwards through church history, and that's a little bit discombobulating to some people, you know, because <laughs> we're not starting it. You know, at the time of Christ and working forward, we're starting at the at the surface level, so to speak, and digging down, going backwards. And so, um, uh, it's 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 a little disorienting. But the reason for that is we it 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 mirrors the direction of our own research. We started with the phenomena that we're acquainted with today mm-hmm. at the surface level, and then we dig down like as if it was an excavation, and we dig down into history, seeing where these ideas came from, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. very good. So that's the approach. Yeah, And Suarez, Suarez. occupies uh, an important yeah. place. He, he's not that well-known, which is interesting, because he's, uh, he's, a, he's a towering scholastic yeah. figure. Yeah. He's just amazing. And, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, we think of as, as a doctor of all doctors, you know, as... as um, uh, one of the popes has said, but uh, in another way, uh, Suarez is just as encyclopedic as Thomas Aquinas yeah. was. He's been described as somebody who has made all of the prior doctors of the church, you know, his own part of his own uh, sort of data, you know, that he has in his mind. And so he's just he's very important in that. Respect. And he's important in a number of disciplines too. Yes, yeah, right. I've, I've seen his name show up in economics, right. politics. Yeah, so. even even some Protestants are. Are acquainted with them. There's a reform scholar who uh, is, is who praises him very highly. Yeah. And Christian Wolff, the uh, the German philosopher that influenced Kant, uh, was very praise, praised praised uh, Suarez very highly, hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so how does he how does he weigh in on this? Uh, the tongues claim associated with Xavier, you mentioned, was only a small uh, detail in his much larger body of work, mm-hmm. but uh, significant? Uh, very significant. Um, I think in w- in one way, he's sort of summarizing the mainstream tradition, and he's important for that reason. But he's also important for the way he situates his discussion of tongues within a treatise on grace. And so he spends a lot of time developing the understanding of what grace is and yeah. uh, makes a distinction, of course, between sanctifying grace, which is what's given to all Christians when they're baptized and and seek to walk in obedience with uh, our Lord Jesus. Uh, and then, on the other hand, gratuitous grace, which is something we cannot expect uh, as, as um, um, one of the uh, – one of, one of the – the scholars of uh, spiritual theology has said, uh, gratuitous grace is not something that we can expect to be part of our ordinary Christian life, mm-hmm. right? Gratuitous mm-hmm. grace. I mean, we can seek the higher gifts, but that's not the same as receiving a gratuitous gift of a miraculous nature. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, you also bring Thomas Aquinas in mm-hmm. to uh, same. Chapter here, and what does he contribute to this conversation? Obviously, he's a, you know he's doctor of all doctors, he's a weighty figure uh, in our history, and does he write on this question of tongues, the uh, nature of tongues? He does, and um, um, 
it's 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 kind of odd going from Suarez to St. Thomas Aquinas because he comes before Suarez. But but uh, uh, yeah, there, there are about six points that that I make in the uh, conclusion about St. Thomas Aquinas. And if I can just mention sure. it yeah, quickly. No, yeah, very good. The first point is that he interprets tongue as word or lingua in Latin. Okay. And thus he understands the gift of tongues as a matter of ordinary language. And two, he takes the gift to be either miraculous as in a missionary context or non-miraculous and natural as in a liturgical context. Mm-hmm. Um, although there's no reference in his works to any sort of uh, suggestion, uh, which we're going to look at in uh, Volume 3, suggestion that um, that there was a, a matter of a sacred language which was then requiring an interpreter to be understood by the the assembly, uh, he has no reference to that. He still has an understanding of a liturgical context for language. He, he follows St. Augustine, uh, who we'll look at a bit later. He follows St. Augustine in seeing the office of speaking in tongues as transitioning from the individual to the corporate church. Huh. Right? And so the office of the lector, right, who reads... Um, from scripture, from the you know, and 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 uh, typically that's translated by the priest or or explained in a homily or something. But uh, he sees that as 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 transitioning to the corporate church because the church now in his time speaks in all the languages of the world. Right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes not uh, uh, necessarily an individual gift. It's right. been incorporated into the body of Christ. Uh, universally, and so it it shows up then uh, at moments in l- the liturgy. The lector, yes, it the can lector. be. You can see that, right? Yeah. Okay. Now he also says that um, uh, the gift of tongues could also mean an ordinary talent for languages, right? Oh, and that's that's something very important. I think through church history, one thing that we see frequently is that the gift of tongues is understood as simply a natural gift for languages, as well as in some cases, a miraculous gift. Uh, so, you know, my daughter has a gift for languages, and she she knows three languages now in addition to English, mm-hmm. uh, Italian and Latin and Greek. Wow. And um, and uh, so she has a gift of tongues in that sense, sure, right? Sure, sure, sure. And uh, yeah. that, that's the way in which it's often used in church history and ecclesial documents, which is kind of interesting. A fourth point he makes is that um, tongues is not the same as prophecy, but he holds that one who prays in a foreign language with understanding accomplishes more than one who merely recites such a prayer without understanding. So even in his time, there was this this phenomenon of people reciting, sort of rattling off prayers that they didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's the kind of thing that maybe in Volume 3 we'll look at in the context of St. Paul's assembly in Corinth. You know, what was being done there? Yeah. What yeah. was that kind of thing going on there where, you know, there's speaking to God, but without understanding. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, and St. Paul, of course, favors uh, being able to speak with understanding. Right. Yeah, right. That's to be, uh, to be uh, his priority. There's one place and only one where St. Thomas uses the word or the expression unknown tongue, and it's in reference to Acts chapter 2, verse 4, where it means speaking in a language like non-Aramaic language, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the apostles. So that's that's all, the only reference he has on the use of tongues in Acts chapter 2. 
The only reference to unknown tongues, okay. right? That expression doesn't appear in any of his writings except when he's commenting on Acts chapter 2, verse 4. What was, how was this, you know, we started, said we started back here in the right. 21st century to the 20th century, 19th century. We're going back, we're doing archaeological dig here, yeah. digging down yeah. different strata that we're looking at. Um, I mean, I'm just curious, do, do we know I mean, the local parish at that time, we don't have, people did not have the liturgical resources we have today. But I'm just curious, was there any, um, at that time, any group that you could say, oh, they're the equivalent of a charismatic community today? Or a Pentecostal community today, operating, you know, within the uh, the diocese. There's, um, there are, of course, the Montanists. Yeah, yeah, are sort of like that in a sense because they claimed to be moved by the Holy Spirit, and they claimed to represent a new prophecy, right? A new prophecy. Yeah. Um, the trouble there is that the word glossa is not used in all the any of the key passages. Huh. The word glossa, the you know, tongue, is not not used. And the other problem is that uh, uh, Bishop uh, Eusebius of Caesarea roundly condemns them as right. diabolical, <laughs> <laughs> which is not. Too you don't helpful. want to really want to be associated with them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now I, I've read some some um, Pentecostal and charismatic literature in which the, the attempt is made to try to sort of rehabilitate the Montanists, yeah. and I understand that because they were sort of perfectionists and so on. But but there's still some real major problems with them, and one of the problems. With Tertullian, of course, is that uh, he seceded from the church to join them, but then he seceded from them to form his own uh, very anti-Catholic really uh, at the community end. at the end. Yeah, which is really troubling when you, th- you dig into it. <laughs> I knew he, I knew he had uh, left uh, the, the mainstream. Yeah, in joining the Montanists, I didn't realize he'd started his own wing. He did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the, which is why he's not Saint Tertullian. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> What what do we know about that? About his his, his own his own secession, yeah. Not a whole lot. There's a little bit in um, oh, what's his name? Um, I can't remember the name of the scholar. He's a well-known German liberal scholar from the 19th century. But um, Harnack, Harnack is the one. Yeah. Yes, he's the one. Yeah, he had the history of dogma. Yeah, big, and big so he, he mentions it. Yeah, he mentions it, and uh, he, he tries to date it and so forth. Yeah. It's a very interesting interesting movement. Um, definitely. Um, if I can go back to St. Thomas, not to St. Thomas, but to there's a chapter we kind of skipped over a little bit. We talked a little bit about it, but it's a chapter on hearing and you know versus speaking. Yes, yes. And one of the figures in that chapter that I find particularly interesting is uh, Origen. Yeah, he's another one who's not a saint. Origen because he flirted with uh, universalism. Right. Um, my son wrote a dissertation at Catholic University on origin, and he claims that these were never beliefs that he was propounding as his own, but were merely speculative, so okay. he, he tries to exonerate him. But still, I find him very interesting for what he says about tongues, and I have several points here. One is that 
Uh, he was no cessationist. I'll tell you, it looks like we're going to have to take a break. So oh, sure, that's, that's there, We'll take fine. the break yeah. and uh, continue on to make this a little cleaner there. Uh, with me, Dr. Philip Blosser. He is a co-author of Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. On the other side of the break, we'll come back and talk about uh, Origen, uh, the great uh, Catholic thinker. Uh, and I think, you know, he is often a universally, he's been considered a father of universalism, but uh, this has now been uh, challenged. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Last week on Ave Maria Radio's Pull of the Week, we celebrated All Saints Day by asking you to choose your favorite saint. The most popular by far was St. Joseph, with more than 30% of the vote. Coming up in second, we had St. Maria Goretti, and also receiving votes St. Peter, St. Patrick, St. John Paul the Great, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and St. Michael the Archangel. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the poll of the week. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Connection with Teresa Tomio. That idea of suffering is one of the reasons many people either turn away from God or they ignore faith altogether because they cannot comprehend or wrap their heads around suffering and all the suffering in the world. This is an issue for you, and it's it's an issue for all of us from time to time when we go through rough situations. To say, Lord, what do you want me to learn about suffering? Ask the Lord to help you understand the meaning of suffering. God doesn't waste his time with anything. Whatever you go through, he will use if you allow him to use it. And you look at the greatest evil, right? The killing of God, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross. And what came out of that? Our salvation. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Whom does Jesus invite to enter the kingdom of heaven? The Catholic Catechism tells us he invites all to enter. Originally announced to the Israelites, the kingdom is now open to people of every nation. But to enter that kingdom, one must accept Jesus' word. 
The kingdom belongs to the poor and lowly with whom Jesus identifies. The poor and lowly means those who have accepted the kingdom with humble hearts. To the little ones, the Father is pleased to reveal what is hidden from the wise and the learned. Jesus makes active love toward the poor of every kind a condition for entering the kingdom. Jesus invites sinners into the kingdom and speaks of the joy in heaven over the repentance of just one sinner. Jesus' invitation to the kingdom comes in the form of parables. To enter the kingdom, mere words are not enough, however. Deeds are also demanded. One must give everything. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Philip Blosser, co-author of Speaking in Tongues, a Critical Historical Examination. And we've been, again, burrowing down through church history. We were talking about origin. Um, and, again, one of the most influential uh, Catholic teachers, although uh, not a saint, uh, he's, not, well, he's not canonized a saint, let's put it this way. Um, and you know, because he was thought to teach that all would be saved. But on this question of tongues, what what does he offer us? Yeah, there's several points uh, I would make about Origen. Uh, one is uh, that he supposed that the Apostle Paul was graced with the gift of many languages in a natural sense in order to carry out the gospel to many different nations. You know, in the book of Acts, I think there's a reference to Spain. He may have gone as far as Spain. And he was a student of Gamaliel, and um, he was a protege of Gamaliel. So when he he defected to the uh, to to the way of following Jesus, this was a big loss for Gamaliel. Uh, he would have been familiar where he grew up in in Tarsus, which is in southeastern Turkey today, with uh, Aramaic and also with Greek. He would have known those two languages, and he would have learned um, the, the different levels of Hebrew. He would have learned the Holy Hebrew, um, the the sacred language of Hebrew okay. from Gamaliel as a student. And he he knew Latin as well. He would have known Latin, <clears throat> and so he is. When, when he says, "I speak in tongues more than all of you," he yes. is probably saying, I, "You know, I was I, I'm able to speak more languages than all of you, and yet I would mm-hmm. rather speak a language that you understand, yeah. you know, to communicate." So this is one point that he makes that among one of his more interesting passages uh, in Origen suggests that Paul's words about praying and s- singing with the Spirit. This is in First Corinthians fourteen, fifteen, involved a reference to psalmody, huh, that yeah. it was singing the psalms, reciting and singing the songs in, a, in psalms in a liturgical context. That's one po- another point. Uh, a third point is that in his commentary on First Corinthians thirteen, the love chapter, <clears throat> he suggests that um, Origen suggests that um, that um, Paul, when he was referring to the tongues of angels was using hyperbole, right? That this is hyperbole yeah. and not intended to be taken literally. Angels, of course, uh, don't communicate in languages as we do right. anyway. They, they know by means of a direct uh, intellectual intuition without any need for sensible sort of interaction and so forth. Um, the last point is the one that is the most uh, controversial and the most interesting, I think, and it's the point that uh, has to do with his 
treatment of Celsus. Celsus had written a book. Uh, the Heretic Celsus. Yeah, the Heretic yep. Celsus, a work against Christians. And in Origen's work, Contra Celsum, uh, he says that uh, um, when, when Origen quotes Celsus, this is the only way we know what he, what he wrote because Celsus' original work is lost. So when he quotes Celsus as referring to prophets who speak in, quote, strange, fanatical, quite unintelligible words of which no rational person can find the meaning, mm. there's some Pentecostal authors who have taken this as an unwitting attestation of Christians speaking in a glossolalic tongues yeah. in, in, the day of, um, in the day of origin. Um, however, the problem with that is that there's no indication that Origen himself believed Celsus had properly identified these prophets as Christian, let alone signals, signaled his approval for their utterances, which he refers to in the following manner. He says, For so dark are they as to have no meaning at all, but they give occasion to every fool or impostor to apply them to suit their own purposes. Unquote. And uh, furthermore, the word glossa never appears in the context of his discussion of Celsus. So um, this cannot be understood, at least by Origen, this was not understood as referring to the gift of tongues. Yeah. Right? This is something else going on. Hmm. Interesting. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also uh, look at Augustine and Chrysostom. Yes. Uh, as we dig back, uh, tell, us, tell us what we can learn from uh, St. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom is um, one of the seven or so church fathers who is uh, quoted most often by um, by Pentecostals and Charismatic scholars. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the one thing that's kind of interesting, if you really get into Charles Sullivan, my, my co-author's um, research, he points out that these are not even the key, the key texts. There, there, there are many more authors like, like uh, Epiphanius of Salamis hmm. and uh, Ambrosiaster and uh, Cyril of Alexander that are much more relevant to the issue of tongues than some of these uh, these they deal with it more directly. More direct, right. Yeah. Now, Chrysostom uh, does speak of the decline of the, the phenomenon of tongues in his own day. And some writers, some Protestants in the 16th century, refer to this in order to bolster their claims to cessationism. Yes, that, that it's, there, it's been, it's been uh, these gifts have been... Uh, finished as at the end of the apostolic age. Exactly, you know? exactly. Now, he doesn't really say that. He's not a cessationist. However, he does say that the more extravagant gifts have declined, and he says they have declined because of the decline in virtue among Christians. Oh, that's interesting. The decline in discipline and sanctity, right? And so he's very suspicious of the spiritual dangers of pride associated with the miraculous gift of tongues and with people who identify themselves as miracle workers. He, he, he thinks that's dangerous. He promotes instead um, a very ascetical sort of discipline, uh, which fosters what he believes is a life of spiritual growth and sanctity. Right? That's what he's concerned with. Now, that's one point that he makes. The other point, though, that's relevant to our topic here is one that he makes about... Um, about 
foreign languages in the church. And he says this. He's, he also expressed an awareness of an earlier time than his own, an earlier time before St. Chrysostom lived. He, he was the bishop of uh, uh, what became Constantinople and is now Istanbul, right? And before his time, he says, he was aware of a time in the church when a sacred liturgical language in the churches would have been unknown to most of the people in the assembly. And therefore, they needed interpreters to interpret what was being done, mm-hmm. right? So that's very significant. That, uh, and, and it's also sort of an odd admission because 40 years after Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria acknowledges that this practice continues in various Christian churches mm. of having a sacred language which requires an interpreter, interpreter to interpret. Yeah, for, the, right. for the attend, those in right. attendance. Um, does St. Augustine also believe that gifts are in decline? Yes, yeah. right. Now, I think one, one area where some scholars are erroneous is they think that Augustine have ch- changed his mind about miracles, that they had ceased, and then he goes back to believing that they, oh. they still continue. I think that's a mistake. I don't think he ever gave up the view that miracles continued, but he, he did believe that the more extravagant gifts have declined. Right. Yeah. Did he attribute that to lack of sanctity of, among the people? He's not as clear on that as uh, Chrysostom is. Yeah. So I don't know about the reason for the decline, but he does acknowledge their decline. And how does he deal with the uh, gift of tongues uh, or Acts chapter 2, the phenomenon of Acts chapter 2? It's interesting. He doesn't directly address that. His, his uh, discussion of tongues comes primarily up in connection with his, his uh, controversy with the Donatists. The Donatists claim that their ability to speak in unlearned foreign languages was uh, an attestation to God's favor over against the institutional church, which they regarded as corrupt. Right. right. Um, and lax. And lax, yeah. 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 And so, um, so yeah, he... he um, he doesn't directly exegete um, Acts chapter 2 uh, in connection with tongues. That's just not an issue that, that comes up in that context. But over against Adonatus, he, um, he argues that their, their gift of tongues is, is inauthentic. Inauthentic. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. So they, they, they cannot present that as evidence that they are uh, the, the church. Right. Yeah. And 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 again, one thing that that is repeated by Suarez later on, but um, one thing that comes from Saint Augustine is the claim that the gift of tongues has moved from the individual to the corporate church. Right. Saint Augustine holds that too. Yeah. He's he's the one who originally pushed that view in a very prominent way. He argues that. Uh, Originally, in apostolic times and sub-apostolic times, the gift of miraculous knowledge of foreign language was needed for the purpose of evangelization. However, that purpose is no longer—evangelism is still required, but since the Church now embraces the world in all the languages of the world, he puts it in those universal terms, um, the individual gift of tongues is no longer needed. Interesting. Right. Yeah. And Suarez repeats that. Um. Going back, you also deal with a number of other uh, figures in in church history. And mm-hmm. Let me ask you about another of the great uh, creative theologians of the era, and that's Irenaeus. Um, 
<clears throat> how does he deal with uh, this question of tongues? Yeah, Irenaeus is significant because he's a very early uh, church father. He, um, he heard the preaching of Polycarp, who was a, a disciple of uh, the Apostle John, right? right? So yeah. he's, he's right down there in the time of the Apostles. And um, that's significant in itself. But the other point is simply that he, although he didn't write a whole lot about tongues, when he refers to tongues, it's clear that he refers to tongues only in a sense of ordinary human languages which are spoken miraculously, right? That's the main point hmm. with uh, Irenaeus. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, we were talking off the air earlier about the the phenomenon that grows out of the higher critical movement of the 19th and early 20th century. Right. And that is that uh, tongues or glossolalia um, have ceased. And tell me, why would they conclude that? Well, the, the higher critics, yeah, the, the, that's what we're talking about now, yes, right? right? The higher critics tended to be quite liberal theologians, mostly in Germany to begin with. And, um, and were they anti-supernaturalists in general? Not, not all of them, but some of the key ones we're concerned with were, yeah. right? And um, uh, actually, the, the, the earliest attempt to uh, interpret tongues in a way that is a not a non-ordinary human language, that in, in other words, it's not a human language, was by uh, a German um, writer by the name of Christoph Bardili. All right, so he, he, it sounds Italian, but he was German. And in 1786, he wrote a, a work in which he claimed that uh, the gift of tongues in Scripture refers to a, a, a language that is humanly unintelligible. Right. He was the first to raise that. And the next person um, who I was aware of, but I didn't know he was that important, uh, somebody who stressed it was, is Johann Herder. Right? Yeah. Johann Herder. And we'll talk more about him maybe. Yeah. Well, we may not be able to get to it today. Okay. But uh, Phil, thank you so much. It's wonderful being with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next volume. When will it be? It was supposed to be last August, okay. right? <laughs> but we're finding so much new literature that we're just going to okay. take more time. We'll talk again. Yeah. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. St. Ignatius of Loyola describes the challenging characteristics of spiritual desolation in the fourth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. St. Ignatius states that finding oneself totally slothful, tepid, sad, falls within the experience of spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The adverb totally is powerful here. Ignatius applies it to three further forms of spiritual desolation. Persons in such desolation may experience themselves as entirely slothful, tepid, and sad. When a person finds themselves totally slothful, they lack spiritual vitality. When a person is tepid, they lack spiritual zeal. And when they experience a sadness connected to their life of faith, they lack interior joy. Have you asked for the grace to identify and reject spiritual desolation in your life today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does this strange beatitude mean? Well, Father Victor Feltz points out that George Bailey, and It's a Wonderful Life, embodies this beatitude. 
He has to sacrifice his bucketless items and his dreams in order to save the building and loan company of Bedford Falls. But by the end of the movie, he realizes that he's truly the richest man in town. The Beatitudes challenge our understanding of happiness both as individuals and as a society. They're paradoxical and they upend our priorities. We don't need anyone to tell us that good fortune, money, and success do often make us happy. But we wouldn't have thought that the road to riches in God's kingdom is paved with meekness. It doesn't mean denying your gifts, but it does challenge us to allow others to have the spotlight and to approach them with gentleness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Again, Speaking in Tongues, a critical historical examination by Philip Blosser and Charles Sullivan. Uh, two of the three volumes now available. We'll have them for you, of course, in the online bookstore. And uh, again, I, I don't know any other uh, place where this material uh, is available. I think Phil has been doing outstanding work here for us. And uh, I would urge you to take a good look, To Also, the uh, book read in the first hour, uh, King, A Life by Jonathan uh, Icke, uh, is right now the most comprehensive biography of Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, while the book is a great read, and of course very respectful, he doesn't uh, shy Presta away in the from afternoon the darkness. a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio, and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.